The folks who made every effort to be here, uh, taking time out of your schedule yesterday and certainly giving time to the Lord on the Lord's Day. Appreciate those who have traveled quite some ways. It's been spoken several times. But Brother Gwen, really appreciate you putting first things first and hope that you feel that the investment of time and money has been well worth it in terms of the dividends that have been returned to you. I certainly want to thank the congregation for its uh, invitation for me to be a part of this work, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to spend this time with you. I also want to appreciate and uh, express thanks to uh, Greg and Cindy for the hospitality they extended by opening. And, of course, as many of you know, we go way back in that uh, I lived in Knoxville, grew up in Knoxville, and that's where Brother Greg uh, preached for several years at the West Knoxville Church of Christ. And even though we were not members there, we were members at the Oak Ridge Church of Christ, we would oftentimes visit and, and come by. And I remember as a kid being uh, very impressed uh, by Brother Gwen. Although I have to say that the most impressive thing for somebody that age was just how tall he was. I think I was the tallest preacher I'd ever met in my life. So, wow, this guy just goes on for ages. But... Uh, uh, very impressive. Always did a really good job. I forgot about you being uh, economical, as I say in words. I, I don't remember that. But uh, Not that I remember being long-winded either, but uh, I just had forgotten that aspect. But no, we always have thought very highly of them and their family. and So very uh, nice to see them still being faithful to God, preaching and teaching, and just listening to the interaction that he has and she has with the group here is very encouraging to me. So I really appreciate them and, and what they've done. Uh, we spent a little time this afternoon, Rick and Sue, they opened up their home, and uh, we had a fantastic meal. I mean, it was delicious. Really appreciate their hospitality. And uh, do that. If you have an opportunity to open up your home, not just to a visiting preacher, but to one another, it's so important. First Peter 4, 9 says that we are to be hospitable to one another, and so that's a command. And like we've made the point multiple times, if there's a command and we don't do it, what is it? It's sin. And so if we have not been hospitable, then we need to start being hospitable. And there's so many benefits, as we were talking about Rick and Sue's, that we get so much closer to one another and build the kind of capital that we may have to draw down on from time to time when maybe one or the other needs to be encouraged and needs to be corrected or instructed. It's much easier to do that when you've established that there's love. There's love between brothers and sisters in Christ. And you do that by spending time and studying God's Word, praying together and talking one another, getting to know one another. I bet you in this group, at a group this size, there are all kinds of wondrous stories uh, to be told. The other day, somebody was telling me about somebody in our congregation, and I was embarrassed. Having gone there now for about 19 years, I never knew this fact that was uh, divulged. And I told myself, you know, I need to get to know my brothers and sisters better. I should have known that. And so uh, I'm certain that could be said here. In fact, I went to one congregation. They had a, an assignment for their young people in a youth class. And basically, it was almost like a trivia pursuit. And they'd say, you know, which member of the congregation uh, fought in World War II? And which member of the congregation was a vice president of the bank? And they had to go around and ask questions and figure out and, and, and come back and report that. And that exercise just drew everybody closer as so they got to know each other a lot better. Of course, the, the older members enjoyed talking to the younger members about their stories and what they had done in their lives. So just something to think about. We need to be as close as we possibly can be. Uh, it says this is not on. Let's see. It says it's on. <laughs> that. Does that work? Okay? Great. Fantastic. All right. You know, uh, if you've done any watching of television or in the news, you're, you're familiar with the concept of camouflage. A lot of times we see this 
context of the military, that they will wear outfits that are designed to blend into the surroundings that they are in. And so if they are in a jungle environment, then they tend to be a lot of uh, greens, light green, dark green, that sort of thing. If they're over in the desert, then maybe a lot of tan and light brown. But camouflage, that whole concept is that you blend in with your surroundings. You blend in with your environment so that you don't stand out, so that the enemy can't see you uh, before they attack. And of course, that's a very important concept in that arena. But I'm not particularly concerned about the military this afternoon. I want to talk about spiritual things as we have this whole weekend. And I want to suggest that that concept, however valid it may be in the military application, is not valid, is not appropriate, is not legitimate in the service of God. And yet, there are lots of Christians who at various points in their lives have fallen prey to that very concept. And unfortunately, I stand before you to say that there was a time in my life where I fell prey to the idea of being a Christian in camouflage. And that's what the name of the title of the sermon is going to be, Christians in Camouflage. Christians in camouflage. And what I mean by that is the following, and let me just relay uh, my period of dabbling with this. And so I obeyed the gospel very early in life. And I know there are all kinds of thoughts about that sort of thing. And there are times, I know at the Oak Mountain Congregation recently, we had a husband-wife couple, both of whom had obeyed the gospel early in life, had some doubts about whether or not they truly understood what they had done at that early age and ended up getting baptized uh, for, in, for the mission of their sins because they felt like they hadn't done it for the right reason. And certainly, I respect that. Uh, my caution would be that it's just not... Uh, uh, we're not capable of creating arbitrary rules that apply to everybody on those sorts of things. So, in other words, what I mean is there are people like myself who obeyed the gospel very early in life and have never had a doubt about why we did what we did. And in fact, I was telling a couple, uh, for those of you all that know Henry Horton, Brother Horton, at the time that I became a Christian, was one of the elders at the Oak Ridge Church of Christ. And uh, I guess my parents were a little concerned that I might be too young uh, to obey the gospel. And so they asked Brother Horton to come, and this is the mind of a young person is probably a little more pejorative than it should be, but it seemed to me that it was an interrogation uh, by Brother Horton of me about whether I knew what I was doing. And so he interrogated me, and uh, I suppose that I passed. Now, what none of them knew, Brother Horton or Mom and Dad, was the bottom line was I was getting baptized with or without their approval. <laughs> and the reason why was this had been on my mind for a while, so much so that I recall having a dream where I met an angel of the Lord, and the question very simply was, have you been baptized into Christ? And the answer was no, and he officially obliterated me right there. Now, that's terrible theology. But it made a point that I was worried about the fact that I had not been baptized into Christ, and I needed to be. And so, as everybody was asking these questions and interrogating, I knew one thing, regardless of the outcome of that analysis, I was going to be baptized for Christ because it's my soul on the line. When you have a young person that gets to that point where you can't talk them out of that, I would suggest to you they probably know what they're doing. But I do understand there are those who have done that, and uh, that was not the case. But anyway, going back to my story, so I was baptized early as a child, and I had this terrible problem. I, I like to please people too much. I like people to be pleased with me. And I kind of, you know, was watching, observing others who were Christians and 
interacting with the general student body of where I went. I thought, you know, I can do better. I can do better. Because I, I noticed something. The Christians, you know, they just weren't that cool. They just weren't really accepted. And they're kind of nerdish and kind of outside the social norm and just not the kind of people you want to hang. I said, you know, I can do better. I know how to do that. I, I can hang on to my convictions. I know the gospel. I understand the message. I understand the principles. I can articulate them clearly. But at the same time, I think that I can still hang out with some of the more worldly elements of my classmates and maybe in some ways kind of hold hands with Christ while I'm holding hands with the world. So I thought. And I went through that for a period of time. It was interesting that as we started to get older, I noticed, at least in my mind, it seemed like there was more and more tension between my ability to hold on to Christ and my ability to hold on to the world. Because things started happening. We started getting older, and there was more separation. You know, even ungodly people at certain ages think that, well, kids should not be involved in certain things. And so the difference didn't seem to me as pronounced. But as we got older, then folks start loosening up and saying, well, at that age, yeah, you can do that and you can do this. And all of a sudden, I'm being stretched and stretched and finally realizing, which had been true all along, I just hadn't realized it, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't hang on to Christ and the world at the same time. And so I realized that you cannot be a Christian in camouflage. And that's what I want to impress upon all of us here, because... Young people, yes, I'm talking to you because we fall prey to that. We, that's just kind of a rhetorical uh, approach there. Uh, we fall prey to that often, but i got a secret for you, young people. Older people fall prey to peer pressure too. And sometimes we, older folks in the workplace, among our family members, are Christians in camouflage. Have you ever been in a discussion where something comes up, a topic, it may be, Marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it might be fornication, it might be salvation, it might be homosexuality, whatever it is, and you hear what's being discussed, and you know I have what I call it my false doctrine alert that goes off in my stomach. And do, 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 and I have to feel it. Okay, false doctrine. And you, you see that, you hear it, you know what the truth is, you could probably even quote a passage that directly addresses it, and yet for some reason you don't say a word. You don't say a word, and you go home, and it's nagging at you, it's bugging you, you're getting ready to go to bed, you're in the mirror, and you look up, and you're like, I should have said something. I should have said something. I knew. I knew it was wrong. And you go a little deeper, why didn't I say anything? Because you were afraid. Because you were a coward. You didn't want to be uh, singled out. You didn't want to be alienated from the group. You didn't want to be ostracized. You didn't want to be made fun of. You didn't want to be different. You wanted to blend in. <laughs> Christians in camouflage. And so we've got to be very careful about that because as we're going to see from the Scriptures, nothing of the sort is taught in the New Testament. If you want to be a Christian in camouflage, then might I say give up Christianity altogether because you just can't do it that way. And Think about it this way. Think back to my thinking about I could figure out a way to hold hands with the world and Christ at the same time. Think about the arrogance of that. Now, basically what I'm saying is, I feel like I've got better communication skills. I've got better social skills. I can navigate these straits better than most of the people around us. But think about the one who was the most skillful in interpersonal communications. The one who was the most skillful in social dynamics. The one who was the most skillful in communicating. 
That would be none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Was he able to pull off holding hands with the world and God at the same time? Of course not. Didn't even try. But if the most skilled communicator that's ever walked the face of this earth couldn't pull it off, who do we think we are to think that we can? That's hubris. That's arrogance. You can't do it. You're going to offend people. The rich young ruler walked away sorrowful. The Pharisees were angered. They were called hypocrites. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to anger other people. You're going to be different. You're going to be singled out. You're not going to blend in with the crowd. We have to embrace that. In fact, that leads me to my first point. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must embrace the fact that we are different. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must embrace the fact that we are simply different. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must embrace the fact that we are different. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We talked about that verse earlier. Now let's focus on verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right there we know that being a Christian in camouflage is contrary to God's Word because what does he say? He says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't act like the world. Don't talk like the world. Don't dress like the world. Don't behave like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't project yourself as the world does. Don't blend in, which is the very definition of camouflage. He says, rather than be conformed to the world, he said, no, 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 no. You are transformed. You're completely different by the renewing of what? Of the mind, of the heart. You will stand out. You are different. You're not like the masses. You're not like everyone else. That's a very important concept, not only for our kids and our young people to get, it's a very important concept for everybody to get, but especially parents. Because it seems to me that there are a lot of parents who are just so afraid that, oh no, my child is going to be singled out as different. They're going to treat him different. He's not going to blend in. He's not going to get along. He's not going to have as many friends. We need to embrace the fact that we are different. That's okay. That's fine. Down in Alabama, where I live, I remember when I went from Tennessee to Alabama, something changed. I've always been a supporter of University of Tennessee Vol. But being in Hagen territory, I became more rabid in my support of the Vols. And so when we had children, we had a great controversy in our family because my wife, she has many, many redeeming qualities, but she unfortunately is a supporter of the Alabama Crimson Tide, the only flaw that I can find. And so we had a question. What are we going to do about these children? Are they going to be Alabama fans? Are they going to be Tennessee fans? Well, you know what I want. I want them all to be Tennessee fans. You know what she wants? All Alabama fans. So we said, we will broker a truce. We will not buy any paraphernalia. We will not indoctrinate. But we'll let other people, if they give us gifts, now we're not going to turn those away. Now that was, you know, I could consider myself a skillful lawyer and a skillful negotiator. That was bad negotiating on my part. Because where are we at? In Alabama. So if anybody gives any gifts, what are they likely to be? Alabama. 
So I had to get on the horn and surreptitiously call Dad and said, Hey, send some gear down here. You need to get these kids raised right. And so over the years, I only was able to rescue one. My son Blake is a Tennessee fan. And die hard. I mean, when I say die hard, we, uh, we went last year to the semifinals against my better wishes, but to see Alabama play Clemson. And after the game was over, I just want to get out of there. It's not my team. I'm not celebrating. I don't like Alabama. I want all their souls to be saved, and I don't like the institution. So I wanted to leave. And you no, know, Jacqueline wants to stay and just soak it all in, get the experience. And so we're standing around, Blake and I, and we're walking out, and there's an older fella that's got some Alabama gear on. And he comes up to my then nine-year-old son and puts out his fist for a fist bump and says, Roll Tide! And Blake just looks at him. Watch his face. And I had to come out and rescue the optimist in situations that, sir, he's a Tennessee fan. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. So, you know, he, he, he's got character. Now, my wife says the problem with that is, hey, we're in Alabama. Everybody's either Alabama or Auburn. He's going to be awkward being a Tennessee fan. I said, no, that builds character. Bill's, he's different. You need to learn how to be different. Now, that's a funny application of it, but really, really, we do need to teach our children it's okay to be different. Because if they're following God, they're going to be different. How can you be following God and not be different in a world that's described in 1 John 5.19 as being under the sway of the wicked one? It must be so that we are different and we stand out. And the Bible teaches that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must embrace the fact that we are different. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. The Bible says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now listen to verse 4. In regard to these... They think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Remember we talked about Ephesians 2, 1-2 again. We began being dead in our trespasses. And when you begin being dead in your trespasses, you have friends and associations of people who are likewise dead in their trespasses. But then something happens. You obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a part of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ is repentance. And repentance means there has to be a change of mind that leads to a change in thought, actions, and behavior. And once that change occurs, he says, you know what? The folks who used to run with you, the folks who used to hang with you, the folks who are in that same dead trespasses condition, they all of a sudden think you're what? Strange. Why? You're different. And you are different. And they speak evil of you. That's okay. The Lord's telling us that's going to happen. And we need to embrace that. That's a sign that we're doing something right. If, if all, as Luke 6.26 says, if everybody is speaking well of you, you better watch out. That's when there's problems. Because everybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I always use that as a litmus test sometimes. When everybody loves Kevin Clark and everybody thinks Kevin Clark is great, Kevin Clark ain't doing something right. Excuse the bad English. 
Because you can't be faithful. You can't be godly. You can't walk as God prescribed and have everybody like you. It just cannot be done. And we need to embrace that. That's okay. It's okay when you're 10. It's okay when you're 20, 30, 40. It doesn't matter what your age is. It's okay to be different. In fact, it's demanded that we be different. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 9 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. The Bible says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Yes, we're special. That's exactly what that verse says. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're His own special people. Not so you can feel special. Not so you can pump up your ego and sense of self-worth. No, there's a purpose why we're a chosen generation, why we're a royal priesthood, why we're His own special people. He says, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into light. It's ultimately for the glorification of God. We are different to proclaim the praises of God who's done a wondrous thing in our life, taking us out of that state of dead trespasses and making us alive again so that we can grow in Christ as we talked about this morning. We've got to be different. We can't be like everybody else. And that's okay. Embrace that. It's not different for the sake of being different. It's not different to be an oddball. It's different for a purpose. Serve God. And it must be that way. So that is something that we need to embrace. And we, you know, we talked about introspection and evaluating ourselves. Look at yourself. Are you trying too hard to blend in? Are you trying too hard to be like everybody else? Are you trying too hard not to be, you know, and again, I understand it. Was that old thing, keep your head down when the bullets start flying? But Christ doesn't give us that option. We've got to stand up. And if you take a couple bullets, that's fine. That's part of being a Christian. We've got to stand up to be counted. We've got to make our presence know. Make the, the, the plan of God on whatever situation it is you find yourself, make that known. You don't know what impact that might have. You don't know who might be listening. You don't know who might be paying attention. You don't know who might be watching. People watch you, folks. They watch you. And you don't want to let them down because the one moment you let them down, that may close off a door of opportunity. We need to be different and embrace that. That is how you avoid being a Christian in camouflage. Let me give you a second point. Second point is this. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must seek to please God, not men. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must seek to please God and not men. Look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. To avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must aim to please God, not men. In Galatians, you know that Paul points out that they had moved away from the gospel that had been preached to them. And as you read through the book, you see that it, the problem was that Judaizing teachers, Jews who did not want to be persecuted by their fellow Jews because of the relationship they now had with the Gentiles, who had formerly been deemed as pagan people, and so they were trying to uh, basically get the Gentiles to act like Jews, go ahead and be circumcised, so it takes the heat off them with their Jewish uh, people. So they don't take the hit for, why are you socializing with those Gentile people. You know it's unclean for... Oh, oh, but they've been proselytized. They're one of us now. They've been circumcised, so it's okay. Paul says, no, no, no. The gospel is totally different. 
And you've moved away from what I preach. And he says, you know, if anybody, even an angel in heaven, preach a gospel different, let that person be accursed. In the midst of that discussion in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he makes this point, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Amen. If you know anything about the life of Saul, before he obeyed the gospel. You understand when he says, hey, if I were in the men-pleasing business, I would not be a servant of Christ. Absolutely. He was a rising star in Judaism. He'd been taught to Peter Gamaliel. He said he advanced beyond many of his contemporaries in Judaism. He was an A student. Smart guy. Promising guy. Great future. All ahead of him. And all of a sudden, he gives it all up because of this risen Savior. And he says, folks, if I'm worried about what people think about me, if that's what drives me, if that's the most important thing in my life, is for folks to think I'm great, he said, I would never signed up for Christianity. Never. Never would have been a bondservant of And I wonder sometimes, can we say that? Can we say that if we're, if we're all about pleasing men, I would not have become a bondservant of Christ. And if you feel that way, surely you're not going to let the displeasure of men change what you do in your service to God. It doesn't matter, folks. The only thought that matters, the only assessment that matters, the only evaluation that matters of you ultimately is that of God. That's the only thing that matters. And we need to make sure that as we go through life, as we talk about, we talked about this morning, or last night, about being a student. When we go through our lives being a spouse, being a husband, being a wife, as we go through being a parent, being a mother, being a father, as we go through being a child to our parents, as we go through being an employee or a supervisor or a manager, the overriding thing in all of that is, I want to please God. Period. Now somebody says, wait a minute, you're saying you don't care about your husband, care about your wife, don't care about uh, children, don't care about uh, employees and fellow men. I'm not saying I don't care about it, but the ultimate thing, the most important thing should be to please God. And here's the thing. When you please God, Everything else falls into place. Everything else. Because if you're pleasing God, guess what? You're going to be the husband you're supposed to be. You're going to be the wife you're supposed to be. When you're pleasing God, you're going to be the father you're supposed to be. You're going to be the mother you're supposed to be. When you're pleasing God, you're going to be the child that you should be to your parents. When you're pleasing God, you're going to be the employee. You're supposed to be the employer. When you're pleasing God, you're supposed to be the employer or the supervisor or manager to your employees that you're supposed to be. It all falls into place. But, first and foremost, we please God. Look at First Thessalonians 2.4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. If we're going to avoid being Christians and camouflage, we must please God and not men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. 1 Thessalonians is the second chapter in the fourth verse. Paul says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. I love that idea. They have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The idea that God would give men the gospel, to put it in our hands, to share with others. And of course, they, in a very special sense in terms of the apostles, he says that we have been approved by God. We've been entrusted with this gospel. And he says as we preach and we teach, you know what? We're not worried about pleasing men. But we are concerned about pleasing God who tests the heart. Can we say that? As we go through our day-to-day existence, we're not worried about pleasing men. We're worrying about pleasing God, who knows not only what we say and what we do, but He knows the very things that we think in the deepest, most innermost recesses of our mind. God knows it. 
Do we in everything we do, remember John 8, 29, we talked about Jesus, I always please my Father. I do what's pleasing to Him. Can we say that's when we wake up? With our mantra in life, our goal in life, our purpose is to everything we do to please God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11 suggests that's exactly what our purpose in life should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11. through 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11. through 11. To avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must please God, not men. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11. The Bible says this, Therefore we make it our aim, listen to this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. That's the goal, that's the aim, that's what I'm shooting Ten, four, because why I'm trying to be well-pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God and also trust are well-known in your consciousness. I like that. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God. Do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God every day? Do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God in how you are a student? Do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God in how you interact with your spouse? Do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God in how you interact with do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God and how you interact with your parents and your grandparents and your uncles and cousins? Do you make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God and how you interact with your fellow co-workers or fellow students? In everything, being well-pleasing to God. Why? Because it's His opinion, assessment, and evaluation that matters. And that's about it. That's what matters. I remember when I was in college, still suffering with this uh, idea of trying to please people. And, you know, sometimes people would say some things about me and they kind of get me... Get me upset a little bit. So I uh, had a good friend of mine. He'd give me a, a free counseling session. And just to kind of pick me up a little bit when I was feeling kind of down because somebody criticized or said something negative. And uh, the counseling session kind of went like this. And remember, we're in college. He would say, okay, this individual said something negative about you. Is this person in a position to offer you a scholarship? No. Okay. Is this person in a position to offer you a fellowship? No, not really. Is this person whose opinion you're worried about in a position uh, to offer you an internship? No. Then why do you care what they think then? Okay, thank you. I needed that. His point being, why do you... I mean, these people have no impact on your future. They're saying things and they can't give you money to go to school. They can't give you any internship, job opportunities, and you're all worried about what they think. Now, I want to borrow that concept and use it this way. This person whom you're trying to please, this person who bothers you so much, this person gets you worked up, this person whom you don't want to have a bad attitude about you, do they have the ability to send you to hell? Do they have the ability to invite you into heaven? If the answer is no, why do you care what they think? And if you think that's a flippant uh, kind of preacher rhetorical construct, look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. And see if the same point is not made by Jesus on this occasion. This being part of the limited commission. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and the 28th verse, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There you go. <laughs> I 
as you're going out teaching, don't worry about what men say. Don't worry about the rulers of the synagogue, what they say. Don't worry about what the kings say, because the absolute worst they can do is kill your body. That's the worst thing they can do. He said, you want to worry about something. <laughs> you worry about the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the one whom you need to be concerned with. That's what he's saying. We want to please God. We don't care what other folks are saying. We want to know what God knows about us, and we hope that what God knows about us is that we are faithful servants of His that love Him with all heart, mind, and soul. That's what we need to be in the business of. That's how we avoid being Christians in camouflage. Let me give you a third point. To avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must let our light shine before men. To avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must let our light shine before men. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew, the fifth chapter, Verses 13 through 16. To avoid being Christian camouflaged, we must let our light shine before men. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. The Bible says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We have to be lights in our community. We can't be fearful of doing God's will. We can't be fearful of being obedient, whether in public and private. We can't be fearful of sending the message out, of challenging people who uh, utter false doctrine in our presence. He says, let your light so shine before men that people may think that I'm a witty, charming guy, that people may think I'm so intelligent, that people may be impressed with my biblical knowledge, that people may sing my praises. No, none of that. He says the reason why you need to be a light is so that God will be glorified. That's what it's all about. So we live our lives in accordance with God's will, and we do that so that the praise is directed to our Maker. Uh, another sermon that I have, an interesting study is how time and time again throughout the Scriptures, old and young, uh, old and new, I'm sorry, uh, you see faithful gospel or faithful uh, followers of God who receive what they believe, and they correctly believe this, to be misdirected praise. You know what they do immediately? They deflect it to God. Daniel did that. Joseph did that. Peter did that. Paul did that. They weren't about to accept the praise that was not due them. It was due to their God. And on the flip side, I do remember a biblical character who did accept some praise that he should not have in Acts chapter 12. And that was Herod. And I don't know if you remember that story. God struck him down through an angel of the Lord. He struck him with worms and he died. The people had said the voice of a God, not of a man. And instead of doing like godly men do is, no, that's not. Hey, what are you talking about? And deflecting it to God, he didn't do anything. He just accepted it. And God showed his displeasure in very swift terms. We need to learn what it means to let our light so shine before men so that God is glorified. We've got to stand out. We've got to be different. The way we dress is different. And folks, it's difficult to dress appropriately in this society. Uh, especially, I've talked a lot to uh, women. And my understanding is it's hard to find uh, modest clothes just in the general public. And it's getting harder still. And so much so that there are folks now who are buying clothes online with certain companies that are marketing to religious people who want to dress modestly. 
That's a shame, but, but don't, even though it may be difficult, don't give in. Do what's right. Always dress modestly. And, and yes, you're going to be different. And yes, my, my wife, I used to joke with her because uh, when we were dating, she would always wear these dresses that were very long, super long. I call them floor sweepers. But I, I appreciate that because she wanted to be modest. And with those floor sweepers, she absolutely was modest. That's good. And then don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of it. Let your light shine. We talked about language. Let your light shine in your language. Let your light shine in attendance uh, of the services. I'll tell you, we talked about this a little bit last night. Uh, that gets people's attention. I remember when I was uh, in law school, and I worked for a firm uh, in Birmingham just during the summer. And, and I don't have any specific recollection of this other than uh, what was told to me later, but uh, evidently there was a, a Wednesday night where a bunch of the law students were getting together after having had a day of work and were going out somewhere to do something. And I had indicated that I can't do it Wednesday night, got to go to Bible study. So fast forward a couple years, and then I ultimately get employed by this firm. And, you know, I'm minding my own business in my desk. And here comes a lady in from the mailroom, shuts the door, and says, do you mind if I have a word with you for a second? Sure. Steve then used to tell me she remembers two years ago when I had decided that I was going to go to Bible study instead of going out with somebody else. And that impressed her. That impressed her. Why? Didn't see a lot of that. Now, you and I know... That's not impressive. It's what Jesus would say, that's what you do to you. That's what you're supposed to do. Any Christian worth his or her salt would do that. But notice how people in the world take notice of those things. And so if you let your light so shine, even in the things that you don't think much about, you never know who's watching. You never know the message that's being sent. And you might be able to open up a door of opportunity to teach because your light so shines. You see that? Now, if you're just living ungodly and you have profane speech, and you wear immodest apparel, guess what? You're not going to get those opportunities. People are not coming to you. Because you're the furthest thing from somebody who's spiritually minded. I, I see that's true. When people go through difficult times in life, they tend to gravitate towards those they perceive to be spiritual. So you need to let your light shine so people recognize that's a spiritual person. I think I told some of you the reason why, one of the reasons why the door of opportunity for my dad to obey the gospel came to be was because he had a co-worker who was different, the very thing we're talking about tonight. He was different this afternoon. He had a different spirit. He never seemed to get overly upset about anything, always seemed to be joyful, always seemed to have a smile, and just had a different spirit about it. And my dad wanted to know, what makes this guy tick? Why is he like that? And so they got to know each other and start talking, and he finds out about the church, and this co-worker invites my dad to a faithful congregation of the Lord's people, and they start to getting to know the preacher, my mom and my dad, and they start studying, and next thing you know, they've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because one man dared to be different on my dad's job. You see what I'm talking about? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm so very thankful that that co-worker let his light shine. Because that opened a door of opportunity for my family and my brother and many others beyond that. And so that's what we're saying. If we want to avoid that, we've got to be different. If we want to avoid being Christians in camouflage, we've got to embrace it. And we've got to understand that God is to be glorified and praised. And we've got to have no problems in different. Try to seek God. Try to please Him. Try to make Him happy. And yes, let our light shine before men. Let me give you a fourth point. The lesson be yours. 
we want to avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must boldly teach others. We must boldly, and I want to emphasize and underscore that word boldly, teach others. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. If we want to avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must boldly teach others. Ephesians 5, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11. The Bible says, And we have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, if it just, the verse just stopped there. We just say, okay, we just stay away from the fruits of darkness. Just whenever it appears, you run the other way. Don't get involved. Don't support it. Don't endorse it. Just, just stay away. But the verse didn't stop there. It went further and said something else. But rather expose them. But rather expose them. Folks, that's teaching. That's teaching. And let me say this, because sometimes we may fall into this trap. I've fallen into this trap at times. Sometimes we say to ourselves, we say, you know what? I'm being the light. You know, we just talked about Matthew 5, 16, right? I'm being the light. Because I, I, I don't drink, and I don't uh, use profanity, and I wear modest apparel, and uh, I, I go to services faithfully every time the door is open. I, I'm being that light. And that's how I'm doing my teaching. And people can see that. That's what Matthew 5, 16 says. They can see that and they can glorify God. So I'm doing my part. Well, there's some truth to that, but that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Why? Because we have to open our mouths and we have to teach. And I think we may think like this. See, I figured this out a long time ago, that uh, even ungodly people will sometimes, and Brother Glenn and I were talking about this, respect and honor people of faith and their religious convictions. Now, they don't agree with them. <laughs> they're not going to apply them to themselves. But they're like, hey, that's fine. If you, that, that's honorable. That's respectful if you want to believe that way. You, you do that. Just, just stay over here in your corner and have your convictions right there. But if you start opening your mouth and start teaching, whoa, you draw back enough. Why? Because now you're implicating them. <laughs> now you're talking about them and their loved ones and their mother and their father. How dare you? And so we may get in our minds, what kind of cowardly, it's like, ooh, I don't want to teach because I know what's going to happen if I do that. So I'll just be a good, godly person, and that's the way I'll do my teaching. You've got to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. You have to say something. You have to stand up and be counted. And yes, it's difficult. I'm not going to say otherwise. And yeah, you may draw back a nub, and bullets may start flying. But that's what we're called to do. We have to expose them. He says, it's not enough not to have fellowship with them. We've got to go a step further and take the affirmative, proactive step of identifying that's not right. That's not what God's Word says. That's not the Gospel. That doesn't please God. And when you take that bold step, yeah, it may not always be pretty, <laughs> but that's what we're called to do. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. If we want to avoid being Christians in camouflage, we must boldly teach others. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Here is Paul, by inspiration, saying the following, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now listen to this, verse 19. And for me. So Paul is asking those, these brethren to pray for him. For what? And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
I think this is remarkable. Because <laughs> if there's anybody that would ever say has got boldness in the New Testament, it would be the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is the guy who in Acts 17 is going into synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and then going a step further, going into the marketplace where you wouldn't expect people to want to talk about religion. They're going there to buy and sell goods. And he's preaching there. This guy's preaching everywhere. And yet he says, you know what? I want you, brethren, to pray for me that I may speak boldly. That I may speak as I ought to speak. I'll tell you what, brethren. If the Apostle Paul felt the need to pray for boldness, I think we ought to pray for some boldness too. That we may speak as we ought to speak. What about waking up every day and saying a prayer along those lines? God, give me the strength. Give me the boldness to speak as I ought to speak as I'm going to the checkout line in Walmart, as I'm going to school, as I'm going to the workplace, as I'm going to the family reunion. God, give me the boldness to say what needs to be said so we can quit having these moments of crisis late at night in front of the mirror where we have to confront the fact that we were cowards and did not say what was needed on the occasion. And we know that. We need to pray for boldness, brethren. And God will give it to us. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts the fourth chapter, verses 23 through 31. This is after the healing of the lame man by Peter and John. And having been arrested for that, verse 23, and being let go, that's Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God, one accord, and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. For by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Listen to this. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. The same request that Paul made. Here they're making as well. Verse 30, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's that last part? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. What had they just prayed for? Boldness. What did they get? Boldness. And they spoke the word of God boldness. We can pray for boldness. We can pray that we have the courage of our convictions to open our mouths, to say what needs to be said. Folks, we live in an ungodly world. I don't know if there's a way that you can go through a day without seeing something that needs to be exposed. Now, we do so in humility, folks. Now, a lot of harm has been done to the church when we do so with haughtiness and self-righteousness and, 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 and that sort of attitude, pride. There's no, no room for that in the service of God. It's in humility and love that we expose the unfruitful works of God. But the point is, we have an obligation to not only teach, but to, as both these brethren and Paul, boldly teach what needs to be taught. And uh, you all know this. It's easy to be bold in here. It's easy to be bold because we, we all agree. <laughs> We're all on the same team. Where it gets difficult is when you're the only Christian in the room. 
when you're the only person who knows the truth, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're in your homes with other people you've invited over, when you're at the family reunion, when you're out at Walmart in the checkout line, there's a conversation that's been struck up with a cashier. That's when it gets different. There's the temptation to say, this is not the time, this is not the place, I need to move on. It is the time and the place. Because you have the truth and they don't. And you have an opportunity to share it. We don't want to fall into that trap where there are people on Judgment Day, like that song says, they can say, you never mentioned him to me. We're ambassadors for Christ and we must take that seriously. So, folks, I hope that you've gotten something from the lesson about not being a Christian in camouflage. In order for us to not be a Christian in camouflage, we have to embrace the fact that we are different. Uh, in order for us to not be a Christian in camouflage, we have to seek God's will and to please Him and not man's will. In order to be, not to avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we have to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And yes, in order to avoid being a Christian in camouflage, we must boldly teach others. If you're here and not a Christian, we want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. We've done this at every service, giving you an opportunity to make your soul right with God. I don't know if you'll have another opportunity after today. You don't know that. So if that's the case, if that's the reality, why wait? Why procrastinate? Why put it off? You know, we're very clear that the Scriptures, with the principles that it teaches, condemns gambling. But I would suggest to you that not doing what you know you need to do on the assumption, on the presumption that you're going to have another opportunity to do so is essentially gambling with yourself. It may turn out for you. Maybe you'll get another day. But maybe you don't. Maybe you're like my Uncle Vic who died at 37. And nobody can be upset about that and say it's unfair or shake their fist at God because he had an opportunity. And the same can be said for you. If the Lord comes this afternoon and you don't take advantage of that, you can't be mad at God. You can't be upset at Jesus. You had your opportunity. Don't waste that opportunity. If you want to obey the gospel, hear the gospel message, believe that message. May the faith that comes from that message be so compelling that you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. May that faith be so compelling that you repent of your former way of life. And yes, may that faith be so compelling that you are baptized for the mission of your sins. And that is immersion, not sprinkling, not pouring, because that's what the Bible teaches. Baptizo means to be buried and with Christ in the water grave of baptism. The blood of Jesus washes away all of our sins. God says something truly remarkable that mankind cannot pull off. He says, I'll remember your lawless deeds no more. It's gone. The record's clean. And you come up at the watery grave of baptism, a new vessel for Christ to do His will. And that's your entire existence. You're not a nurse, and you're not a businessman, and you're not a contractor, and you're not a lawyer, and you're not a mechanic, and you're not a plumber, and you're not a teacher, and you're not a football star, and not a basketball coach. You are, first and foremost, an ambassador for Christ. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things I mentioned, but we tend to define ourselves by those secular categories. Not so with the Christian. We're simply servants of God. And we're here to do God's will. It's not our purpose in life to have the best life, the most enjoyable life, to have the pleasure. No, our purpose is to serve God. And here's the irony of it all. As we serve God, we will have the best life. But see, it's a matter of prioritization. I'm not here for me. I'm here for God. And that's true for all of us. Some of us just haven't recognized it yet. And if you are here, 
and you haven't recognized it yet, please, could you do something about it right now? We have an opportunity as we stand as we sing for you to come forward and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ.